1: Gentlemen, welcome to Siena Senior Living, Inc.'s Q3 2020 conference call. Today's call is being hosted by Nitin Jane, President and Chief Executive Officer, and Karen Hahn, Chief Financial Officer of Siena Senior Living, Inc. Please be aware that certain statements or information discussed today are forward-looking and actual results could differ materially. The company does not undertake to update any forward-looking statement or information Please refer to the forward-looking information and risk factors sections in the company's public filings, including its most recent MD&A and AIF, for more information. You will also find a more fulsome discussion of the company's results in its MD&A and financial statements for the period, which are posted on CDAR and can be found on the company's website, siennaliving.ca. Today's call is being recorded, and a replay will be available. Instructions for accessing the call are posted on the company's website and the details are provided in the company's news release. The company has posted slides which, can, which accompany the host remarks on the company website under the events and presentations. With that, I will now turn the call to Mr. Jane. Please go ahead, Mr. Jane.
2: Thank you, Andrew, and good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us on our Q3 call this morning. Since the onset of COVID-19, we have been focused on steering Siena through this crisis, always with the health and well-being of our residents and team members being a top priority. Eight months into the pandemic, we are continuing with the relentless efforts to fight COVID-19 and to minimize the impact of new outbreak. While we continue to manage through a very difficult environment, we were able to adjust and strengthen our operations and become more knowledgeable and better prepared in our response to the second wave. We continue to invest in our frontline teams and processes, strengthen the way we communicate, and expanded our leadership team. In order to further strengthen clinical quality and resident safety measures across our platform, our board of directors established a quality committee to focus on the quality of resident care and resident experience. This also includes resident and team member satisfaction, safety, and many other initiatives directed towards improving the quality of our resident's life. I'm very pleased that Dr. Andrea Moser joined Siena as Chief Medical Officer. In her role, she's focused on leading and implementing all aspects of medical services, improving our resident quality platform, and building on Siena's virtual care capabilities so that physicians can come to the bedside of our residents via technology enabling access to a broader range of medical expertise. In addition to Dr. Moser, we continue to receive advice from some of Canada's premier healthcare experts, including Joe Mapa, the former president and CEO of uh, Sinai Health Systems, Dr. Alison McGeer, one of Canada's premier infection prevention and control specialists, and Mary Jane Dykman, an expert in healthcare risk management. We're also in the process of joining Seniors Quality Leap Initiative, an initiative that helps us to benchmark our quality indicators against international standards and allows us to participate in the sharing of best practices, all with the goal to improve the clinical quality and quality of life for our seniors. Moving to infection prevention and control, during the third quarter, we continue to make good progress in implementing important quality and safety measures and to prepare for the second wave. Our incident management team meets daily to monitor the impact of COVID-19 at our residences, reviews announcements and changes to provincial directives and provides guidance and oversight for implementing changes to applicable policies and procedures. We enhanced our training and education of team members and have been holding weekly training seminars and webinars, many of which are focused on learnings from the first wave and addressing site-specific needs. We also substantially increased our personal protective equipment reserves and centralized our ordered inventory system through establishing eight regional hubs in Ontario and BC. Each of our residences now has 30 days' worth of supply, and we are grateful for the government's additional supply of personal protective equipment. We implemented enhanced restrictions for non-essential visitors and non-essential outings in many of our communities ahead of government mandated requirements to do everything we could as COVID cases started to rise across many of the regions in September. During the, week, during the peak of the first wave, we entered into hospital management agreements at three of our long-term care residences. Our hospital partners support helped us evaluate and implement additional measures processes, and protocols. In September, two of the three agreements have concluded. Over the past months, we enhanced our pandemic staffing strategy to support our frontline team members and to ensure continuity of care for our residents. Our staffing needs are met internally through regionally-focused talent acquisition teams and further supported by external agencies who are specifically focused on short-term ready-to-deploy qualified team members. We are very grateful for the continued government support that helps us cover some of the extraordinary pandemic expenses so far. At the end of Q3, the Government of Ontario announced additional funding for long-term care of over $500 million, increasing total funding to over $800 million. As of September 30th, approximately $327 million has been allocated to the long-term care sector The government of British Columbia has allocated approximately 187 million in funding for costs in connection with additional screening and staffing, infection prevention and control measures, and social visitations. The funding is crucial to help offset some of the significant costs driven by the pandemic. Moving to communications, marketing, and sales initiatives, we continue to strengthen the way we communicate with our residents and our team members. We launched a team members mobile app which gives us the ability to reach out to thousands of team members in different locations quickly and directly with new information. We also launched our new centralized call center which supports our communication and marketing efforts with current and prospective residents and their families. Over the summer, we intensified our marketing and sales activities across our retirement portfolio and connected with thousands of prospective residents. We made significant investments with respect to a digital presence with a goal to drive online traffic to our website and social media sites and ultimately increase the number of leads as we saw the positive outcomes during the third quarter. In addition, we redesigned our sales incentive program which successfully converted potential leads to resident movements by the end of Q3. And we started our winter staycation campaign for shorter-term stays in our retirement residences over the winter months. Our marketing and sales efforts resulted in a significant increase in deposits and move-ins from prospective residents in our retirement portfolio. Average monthly occupancy was 81.7% in September, up 60 basis points from August, and increased by another 100 basis points to 82.7% in October. This positive occupancy trend over the past two months was a result of our intensified marketing and sales campaign ahead of the second wave. Retirement occupancy was 81.9% at the end of October, and we expect that the second wave will negatively impact occupancy in the coming months. Rent collection levels remained high at over 99%. Comparing year-over-year occupancy rates, the average same-property occupancy in a retirement portfolio declined to 81.4% in the quarter, from 86.9% in the same period last year. This was primarily related to a decline in new residents moving in due to the impact of the pandemic, including access restrictions. In a long-term care portfolio, average occupancy declined to 87.4% in the third quarter from 98.2% in the same period last year. Long-term care residences are fully funded for vacancies if new residents cannot be admitted due to an outbreak. In addition, we currently receive full funding if we lost rooms due to capacity limitations of two beds per room. This funding protection, however, does not compensate us for the loss of premiums we receive for preferred accommodations for private and semi-private rooms if they're vacant. The impact of the pandemic is reflected in our financial results, which include the extraordinary expenses to manage the pandemic in excess of government funding. We have made investments in additional staffing, personal protective equipment, property infrastructure, entered into management agreements with hospitals, and added additional senior healthcare expertise to navigate the impact of COVID-19. As a result, Siena's AFFO payout ratio increased to 110% in the third quarter versus last year. Excluding the net pandemic expenses, the payout ratio would have been 75%. While we expect a continued increased level of expenses in the foreseeable future, we are confident that we will steer Sienna through the second wave of the pandemic and beyond. We have taken many actions to strengthen our operations, invested in our frontline teams and processes, and maintained a strong, solid financial position with a triple B credit rating. In addition, our liquidity remains healthy at two hundred and ten million as at the end of the third quarter. These are all indicators for Sienna's strong fundamentals in the long term with demand for senior housing expected to remain resilient. There is no doubt the seniors' living sector has been deeply affected by COVID-19. Our recent developments regarding a potentially effective vaccine are encouraging and overall fundamentals for senior housing remain strong. With that, I'll turn it over to Karen. Thank you, Lytton,
3: and good morning, everyone. As Lytton mentioned, Siena has taken extensive precautions to manage the impact of COVID-19 and prepare for the second wave of the pandemic. This impact is reflected in our results and key metrics. Going forward, our results will depend on certain developments, including the duration and extent of the pandemic. I will start on slide 11 on our Q3 financial results. Revenue decreased marginally by 0.7% year over year to 166.9 million in Q3 2020 compared to Q3 2019. Our same property net operating income of 28.9 million in Q3 2020 decreased by 11.3 million over the prior year, mainly related to net pandemic expenses of 7.2 million. Long term care same property NOI decreased by 8.4 million to 14.9 million year over year, and retirement same property NOI decreased by 3 million to 13.9 million. Excluding net pandemic expenses, same property NOI decreased by 4.1 million, largely due to lower occupancy, partially offset by rental rate increases in a retirement portfolio and lower preferred accommodation revenues in our long-term care Ontario portfolio because of vacancies in private and semi-private rooms. It was further impacted by annual inflationary increases in labor costs and higher property expenses, partly due to timing and seasonality. We continue to incur an increased level of expenses to support the cost of fighting the pandemic and minimizing the impact of outbreaks. As outlined in detail in our MD&A, there are various programs and financial assistance provided by the government to support pandemic-related expenses. It is important to note that there may be timing differences between the time of incurring these expenses and the funding of such expenses. During the quarter, we recorded net pandemic expenses of $9.7 million related to managing COVID-19, a decrease of 8.5% compared to the second quarter's $10.6 million. We maintained higher staffing levels and accelerated recruitment and retention of team members as we entered the second wave towards the end of the quarter. We also incurred management fees for our hospital partner support. This was partially offset by lower per unit cost for PPE and additional funding received from the government for pandemic-related expenses. As we overcome COVID-19, Related incremental expenses and its overall impact from the pandemic are expected to subside and we expect this will lead to improvement in the company's operational and financial performance. Turning to slide 13, Q3 OSFO per share was 20.3 cents, a decrease of 16.1 cents compared to the prior year. Excluding net pandemic expenses, OSFO per share would have decreased by 5.4 cents compared to the prior year. The decrease was mainly due to softer retirement occupancy and mark-to-market adjustments in share-based compensation, partially offset by annual rental rate increases in retirement and lower current income taxes. Q3 AFFO per share was 21.2 cents, a decrease of 15.6 cents compared to the prior year. Excluding net pandemic expenses, AFFO per share would have decreased by 5.5 cents compared to the prior year. Moving on to our balance sheet, subsequent to the end of Q3, on October 2nd, we successfully completed $275 million of our debt financings, which significantly reduced near-term debt maturities and improved our long-term debt ladder. These financings, which reflected the confidence placed in our company, included $175 million in unsecured ventures carrying a coupon rate of 3.45% and maturing in February 2026, and a $100 million term credit facility carrying a floating bankrupt acceptance rate plus 225 basis points. The proceeds from these financings were mainly used to repay existing debts, including the full redemption of our Series B security ventures, which were due in February 2021. With these successful financing, the weighted average term to maturity of our debt has been extended to 4.9 years On a pro forma basis, from four years at the end of Q3. In terms of our debt and liquidity, Siena maintains a strong financial position. We were reassigned a triple B credit rating from with a stable trend by BBRS in September. Ended the third quarter with over 210 million in liquidity and further increased our unencumbered asset pool to over 840 million subsequent to our financing on October 2nd. Our debt is well distributed between unsecured debentures, conventional mortgages, CMHC insured mortgages, and credit facilities. Looking at our debt metrics on slide 16, our debt to gross book value increased by 80 basis points to 47.3% year over year. Mainly due to 107 million drawdown from our credit facilities, of which 40 million has been invested in short-term investments to provide us with financial flexibility. Subsequent to the quarter, we repaid 30 million of our credit facility. We decreased our weighted average cost of debt for 40 basis points to 3.3% year-over-year, primarily due to increasing our mix of floating rate debt. Excluding the impacts of net pandemic expenses, debt to adjusted EBITDA increased to 7.2 times in Q3 from 6.6 times in the prior year, and our interest coverage ratio decreased to 3.6 times in Q3 from four times in the prior year. We expect an increased level of expenses for some time, and given the ongoing uncertainty surrounding the impact and duration of COVID-19, we have withdrawn our 2020 guidance earlier this year. In the meantime, we remain committed to providing periodic updates on the impact of the pandemic on our business operations and financial results. I will now turn the call back to Mittens for his closing remarks.
2: Thank you, Karen. We've taken many actions over the past months to review and strengthen our company's foundation. Our initiatives have helped us adjust and enhance our operations, maintain a strong financial position, and made us more knowledgeable and better prepared in our response to the second wave. We look forward to help strengthen the future of long-term care and improve our portfolio with the development of older homes. We have started to evaluate how the government of Ontario's new long-term care development program could benefit CNS properties, and we have submitted our applications for the program. In our view, the new long-term care development program would make many projects financially feasible. Three of our current development projects are in advanced stages of planning and approval. Our development plans also include the redevelopment of Siena's Altamont Care Communities in Toronto into a new 320-bed long-term care campus in partnership with Scarborough Health Network. If built, this campus would provide integrated care for the local community and include 161 new beds in addition to the redevelopment of the existing 159 beds. Since the beginning of March, we have taken many actions We have further increased our focus on quality and safety and strengthened the company's protocols and procedures. We have added over 800 frontline team members. On October 23rd, the Ontario Long-Term Care COVID-19 Commission issued recommendations in relation to increased staffing, stronger healthcare sector partnerships, and improved infection prevention and control measures. We were able to share our own experience and observations during the first wave of the pandemic with the Commission. As a result of these recommendations, the government of Ontario announced that they would increase the hours of direct care for each long-term care resident to an average of four hours per day. This change is expected to be phased in over the next four to five years, and we are encouraged by these recent announcements, which are expected to help shape and strengthen the the future of long-term care. As we look beyond the pandemic, overall sector fundamentals remain strong an aging population, long wait lists for long-term care, and a slowdown in future supply of retirement residences are all expected to support our sector's outlook going forward. I'm incredibly grateful for our team of over 13,000 who are helping Siena through the first wave of the pandemic with compassion and resilience and is now doing everything they can to prevent the spread in our residences during the second wave. Thank you for your participation on the call today. We are pleased to now answer any questions that you may have.
1: Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you have a question at this time, please press star then one on your telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, please press the pound key. And our first question comes from the line of Jonathan Kelcher with TD Security.
4: Thanks. Uh, good morning. Um, First question just on the the increase in in occupancy in the uh, retirement portfolio, um, have you have you been adjusting rental rates to drive that or and what sort of incentives have you been been using, if any?
2: Uh, thank you, Jonathan, and good morning. Um, our focus has never been to adjust uh, rental rates. Um, uh, you know first of all, that's not a good thing to do long term. And uh, unlike hotels where people don't talk to each other in a retirement home, you know, uh, residents talk to each other, and it's not a good feeling when someone new coming in is paying substantially different lower rates than someone who has been there for some time. Usually what we uh, use in line with other, uh, with other peers would be, you know, one-time incentive or help with moving in. Uh, that, would be, uh, that has been our focus rather than adjusting or lowering rental rates. We would adjust uh, rental rates in markets, for example, if there's new supply coming in or we are, we are reacting to some other factors, but the, as a common practice, uh, adjusting rental rates is not uh, what we follow.
4: Okay, um, that's good. And then secondly, just on the, the government funding, um, do you think you've received all that you will for Q3, or do you, do you think you might still uh, get some of those expenses covered? And secondly, some of your, um, your peers have a, applied for the SUSE program. Is that something that you guys are looking
2: at? Sure. So I can answer the first one, and Karen can take the, the second part of the question. Uh, you know, we, we do anticipate future uh, government funding. Uh, just to use long, Ontario long-term care, where the majority of our funding is, uh, we got around uh, $9.5 million in Q3. However, expenses were much higher. Uh, just because of a few one-time items such as hospital management fee and others. Uh, so we do expect future funding. We don't really think it will cover past expenses, but you know our goal would be to narrow the gap between what we're spending versus what we're getting as we better understand uh, you know where and how we need to deploy resources. And Karen can answer your second part of your question.
3: Hi, Jonathan. So with respect to the Q's, uh we were eligible for that program in Q2, and uh, the amounts, however, were not significant based on our occupancy changes. And as we know, the DQ's uh, program is continuing into uh, June 2021. 20, uh, so we expect to continue to evaluate our eligibility and apply accordingly. Um,
4: OK, thanks. I'll, uh, I'll turn it back. Thank you.
1: Thank you. And our next question comes from the line of Brendan Abrams with Canaccord.
0: Hi, good morning. Um, Just want to focus on the uh, net pandemic expenses. uh, Came in just under uh, $10 million for the quarter. Just wondering, um, you know, how we should be thinking about this, maybe moving into 2021 uh, for modeling purposes. uh, And as well, maybe a a second part of the question, um, you know, if we look beyond COVID-19 or the pandemic, you know, how much of these, um, what's called net expenses do you think you know could become potentially structural parts of the of the business?
2: Thank you, Brandon. Um I would just say on the on the current run rate, uh, you know our primary focus is to keep our residents and team members safe. Uh, with, with the magnitude of uh, expenses uh, you know differ greatly from property to property. Uh, depending on the, the level of outbreaks and when there is an outbreak and a and significant one, really all your forecast is out the window because you're doing everything you can to ensure you get additional staff. Um, you know, you might be burning through more personal protective equipment, uh, you know, adding additional staff as needed. So, uh, you know, it is very difficult to forecast that because we don't really have much prediction of how and when outbreaks would happen. Uh, Having said that, we continue to advocate for better funding, and we always talked about having a conservative balance sheet and having strong liquidity, which we have been putting to work uh, during the second wave. So uh, it it is difficult to give us a projection. However, on your second question, we continue to believe that majority of these expenses, because they relate to additional staffing, uh, for example, you would have uh, additional staffing for screening. Uh, your dining room might be open longer in retirement homes because you know there's only one person sitting on the table or you might be serving meals uh, in the rooms of the residents in both retirement and long-term care that adds additional staffing so we we truly do continue to believe that uh, most of these expenses would go away once uh, the pandemic subsides and given the recent uh, news on uh, the pfizer vaccine we do believe that uh, you know that potentially could happen sooner rather than later
0: right okay yeah no that's uh that's very helpful and then just maybe on the de- some of the uh development initiatives um the the one at halt demont and uh the three others you've you're advancing maybe uh, can you just give us a sense of you know how we should think about uh or how you're thinking about uh whether it's development yields uh you know return on investment et cetera like how how does that um you know, how does that look? And then the second part of the question is just in terms of funding the the upfront capital costs over time. You know, is there potential to bring in partners? Would you fund this? Uh, you know, primarily through construction loans. Uh, so maybe just uh, some color on uh, you know uh, returns and then uh, the funding aspect of it.
2: Uh, sure. So let me give you an example of the three projects we have been uh, we have announced previously, which is Brantford North Bay, and Keswick, they're roughly around 160 bed, new additional long-term care beds. And in some cases, we might decide to add retirement, which we are reviewing at this moment. If it's around 160 long-term care beds, uh, the cost is uh, close to 45 million, give or take. And uh, our goal would be to put construction financing, uh, currently there, are construction financing available for close to 70 um, uh, to 85%, so there's a big range there. So if you look at the difference, you're really looking at around $10 million a project of equity on even low side of financing, but as I mentioned, you can get um, even a bit higher. And in the new redevelopment program, there is an upfront grant you get uh, once the construction is complete, so that could further um, reduce your equity requirement upfront. So our goal would be to really fund it through a construction loan and, and using some of our equity, um, you know, or using our, and when I say by mean equity, I mean retained cash flow. You're not looking to go into market uh, for something like this. And we look at development deals, and for these those three projects, uh, you know, we are we think uh, we can get a development deal of around 8%. The Altamont project is a bit different. Uh, in that case, we are uh, working that with Scarborough Health Network. Uh, uh, we believe that will be a great partnership, uh, and we believe the first one in Ontario between a hospital. Uh, and a private company, so that we are still in early stages of uh, of reviewing that. The funding is different uh, because it's in Scarborough with the new uh, government program it goes by location. so I, it's too early for me to uh, reflect on the yields there, but to your point, we are partnering uh, in in that project.
0: Okay, that's great. Uh, I'll turn it over. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Thank you. And our next question comes from the line of Himanshu Gupta with Scotia Bank.
5: Morning. So, just to follow up on the pandemic expenses in the LCC uh, segment, unfunded six point four million dollar in Q three. Uh, what was the amount of one time items in the Q three number, and which you think will not be repeated in Q four?
3: Hi Manchu. Um, During the quarter, we incurred uh, $2 million of hospital partner management fees. Uh, so we really appreciated their expertise and support as three of our long-term care residences. And as we've mentioned, two of those agreements have concluded in September, so we would view those as one-time expenses. And looking at the um, amount of unfunded pandemic expenses, again, that Milton touched on it is Really, uh, the thing with uh, the staffing is we have to be conscientious of you no, know, we are in second wave. So during the quarter, as we were uh, gradually adjusting staffing, the case count started to uh, rise again, uh, even though during the summer our cases were low, and then we actually re- achieved a zero active resident case for about five weeks. So when second wave hit us again, we made sure that we did everything possible to be ready for the second wave to ensure that we have adequate staffing and uh, at the same time accelerated this recruiting and retention of our frontline team members. And so that uh, led to higher pandemic labor expenses. Included in our results is also a bit of you know, our Sienna's uh, pandemic pay um, that is uh, included in Q3 and that program has ended during the quarter as well.
5: Sure, so so barring these one-time expenses, sounds like around $2 million, so can we assume the unfunded level of expenses in Q4 could be very similar to Q3, I mean, as of today?
2: Uh, Unfortunately, Himanshi, we don't really have any guidance on that because uh, first, we don't know what the government would fund, we can only make a guess. And secondly, we can make some adjustments and and if a home is not an outbreak, what we would be spending. But when it goes into an outbreak, uh, depending on the severity of it, where we are located, and depending on how, what happens with staffing, it is very difficult to forecast that. So unfortunately, we don't really have any guidance uh, for you for Q4. Sure, uh,
5: that's fair enough. Uh, And just, you know, bigger picture, I mean, it sounds like government is providing certain level of expenses to get through the pandemic. But I think the level of care which you provide, the expenses are much higher. So is there a way you can adjust your LTC operations so that you incur expenses which are in line with the government? I mean, is that what government is asking the long-term care operators to be?
2: Yeah, that's an interesting question. Again, that's not how we look at it. Um, you know, I, I have no, uh, you know, government is obviously doing whatever they can to help. Uh, it is a global pandemic, and everyone is getting impacted, so we understand we would have to bear some of the pain of it rather than just the government only. And uh, our focus has not been to see what we're not starting with, this is how much we have to spend. Let's come in line with that. What we're starting with, this is what we need to do to ensure everyone is safe and healthy. And the funding would be what it would be. Again, that's a, not a long-term viable s- strategy. So if it continues on for two or three years, we will have to look at it. But you know, we all believe that, especially given the recent vaccine announcement, that uh, this is not a long-term thing. This could be, you know, a short to medium-term, call it over next to six to nine months uh, before a vaccine is commercially uh, available. Uh, so at this stage, you know, we, we're not really, our focus is not to um, uh, spend what we are getting. Our, our focus is to spend what we need to spend, but to do it in a in a disciplined manner. And hopefully those uh, things uh, will start to converge, what we you know, spend versus what we
5: get. Yeah, no, absolutely. That that absolutely makes sense. Uh, and just switching over to retirement home occupancy, just a follow up there. Uh, so obviously in your occupancy up two months in a row, uh, what led to outperformance there? And uh, I mean, it sounds like, you know, uh, in your previous answer, you said, you know, you're not providing much incentives. Is it, you know, the sales program or something else which led to the outperformance?
2: Uh, in uh, around early August, we really started to focus, uh, we've, uh, even, even from a management team perspective, we kind of thought about you know who's working on the crisis and who's working on the strategy for the company, because I think if you all work on crisis, we'll wake up after the pandemic and have a company which is not really focused on strategy. So uh, in the first wave, our Ontario retirement um, a portfolio or retirement in general was not impacted significantly by COVID-19 and the team uh, had started to focus keenly on ensuring we are driving the right marketing campaigns, spending what we need to spend from a digital perspective, and to ensure that we are calling all the previous leads that we had, because we we believe there's a pent-up demand as people were not able to visit, and that happened to uh, be true. Uh, We had significant uptick in people taking tours when restrictions were lifted, and that's really what drove uh, our, our occupancy, and then... August and September, or, you know, uh, middle of August and early September, uh, you know, we were uh, quite optimistic that we this is just the start of something great where we can build on it. However, I would say, based on what has happened, we will now call it, you know, uh, refueling our tank. So we know people would leave, um, you know, uh, as they as they get frailer, they might have to move into long-term care or hospitals, which we cannot stop. So we kind of... Um, you know, got ready by having as many people as we can add uh, to our portfolio, and we will continue to do that, uh, you know, once the second wave subsides or comes down a bit. The reality is our virtual uh, tours continue to be quite strong, and in some locations which are not hot spots where we are safely able to do so, we continue to have to, uh, in-person tours including as um, uh, late as last week, and again, only do it in places which are not in outbreak, which are not in hot regions. So. Again, we, we continue to be um, cautiously optimistic in the forecast of our, uh, of our retirement occupancy, and if it wasn't for the second wave, you know, we would be uh, uh, even be comfortable sharing a bit more uh, in terms of forecasting others, but just not at this point.
5: Got it. Uh, and, uh, and I think you mentioned about the winter short-term stays or staycation. H- how much did that contribute to occupancy growth in the month of October, or do you think they will now be reflected in the month of November?
2: Uh, what we have is some fully furnished suites uh, for some of those uh, prospects, you know, who cannot uh, travel south as many people do uh, in every year. Uh, we, it is really going to be the fourth quarter and uh, uh, early first quarter. We will see some results. It's too early to predict that.
5: Got it. Okay, so just last question from me. Uh, on build 218, uh, is that very similar in design? I mean, uh, you know, to the protection you have in the British Columbia or is it a bit different? And then I'm assuming it will be retrospective and will that cover anything and everything from March and onwards?
2: So again, our understanding is uh, Bill 218 uh, will provide a degree of civil liability protection uh, similar to what uh, exists in BC. And uh, you know the bill frankly recognizes um, the circumstance of COVID-19 and protect those who responded um, uh, to this crisis in good faith. And our understanding is that it would be retroactive uh, to March.
5: Awesome. And does that mean that, you know, a you know, couple of lawsuits which you have in the first wave, that will be covered under that bill as well?
2: I, well, again, we don't really comment on, on uh, lawsuits if it's too early to uh, review them anyways. And, again, that is something when they become a bit more uh, real, and, you know, based on the advice from insurance companies and lawyers, we can provide further information, but it's too early to comment on it.
5: it. Uh, fair enough. And thank you so much. I'll turn it back.
2: Thank you.
1: Thank you. Our next question comes from the line of Pammy Berger with RBC Capital Markets.
6: Thanks, and uh, good morning. Um, Nice to see the increase in deposits in Q3, although uh, occupancy did slip in October. Um, what can you share with us in terms of maybe deposits or lease commitments uh, thus far that have come through in Q4? Uh,
2: thank you. Hi, good morning, Pammy. Uh, as I mentioned, you know, even uh, as late as last week, we continue to see new virtual tours, some in-person tours, Uh, We have had, uh, you know, a good sense of deposits even in the first half of this month so far. So things have not slowed down to zero, uh, which is very positive. Obviously, they are not in a stage what they would be otherwise. Um, You know, high-level deposits so far for the month of October were around, uh, you know, call it three-fourths or 75% of what we would have seen the year before. And hopefully, we'll see something similar in November. The challenge is really um, how do you stop the move-outs because, you know, as people get frailer and at a certain stage, they will start moving into hospitals uh, or into long-term care wherever it is possible to move into long-term care. So, I, again, I, you know, we, we see good traction. Uh, we have not, um, uh, you know, our deposits have not gone down to zero. We uh, definitely see some positive traction. What is hard to predict at this point is how many people will move out.
6: Yeah, thank you for that. Thanks, Stephen. Um, Just in terms of the advisors uh, that you still have on board, do you expect that, you know, these costs and, I guess, this advisory group uh, will continue into next year? And just curious on on perhaps the uh, implications from a G&A perspective.
2: Sure. One of the advisors was uh, Dr. Andrea Moser, and we uh, did hire her full-time. So, you know, she would be uh, working with us full-time, and uh, we are very excited with, uh, you know, the, the rigor she will bring to our medical practices and others uh, uh, on overall company. The rest of the healthcare advisors that I mentioned, a majority of the cost has already been spent. There would be some going forward next year, uh, but we do not see a significant impact of those costs. Some of the GNA costs would be more around crisis management or you know uh, commission uh, legal work. So, again, that's, uh, it's hard to predict depending on uh, the next stages of, uh, of those things.
6: So, I guess uh, in terms of the, uh, I think it was 2.5 million or 2.6 million of uh, GNA costs in pandemic related costs in GNA in Q3, um, I think last quarter he talked about maybe 3 million for the back half of the year. So, it seems like the majority of that has essentially been uh, spent maybe a little bit more ago. Uh,
2: we do expect some pandemic costs to continue on. I just think it's hard, Pam, to give you. Uh, Inside of what it might look like, because I know whatever we tell you, we would be wrong. Because uh, again, we don't really have a view of what it could be. So Fair enough. How do you quantify this point?
6: Yeah, understood. Um, I guess just in terms of the uh, potential uh, long-term long-term care project uh, in Scar in Scarborough, uh, when would that project be completed if it were to proceed?
2: Uh, that project is still in the early stages. I, the, uh, uh, the likelihood of us uh, announcing shovels in the ground are much higher for the other three projects that we talked about, because in many cases, you know, uh, in, all, in all in all three of those cases, it's greenfield. Uh, nothing exists on that site. We, in some cases, we even have site plan approval. We have quite a bit of design work done, so they would be much ahead, and they could be in ground depending on you know, few of our other priorities in the next. 12 to 18 months. Uh, the Scarborough one is still, you know, we uh, we started working on it the last couple of months, uh, so it's still in early stages. There's quite a bit of work to be left uh, done there, so it's hard for me to provide you any timing for the Scarborough project.
6: And just on the three projects, can you just remind us, uh, again, sort of what, uh, how much spending you expect to incur, I guess, over the next couple of years?
2: Uh, sure. So each project is uh, around $45 million or so. So, you know, our goal would be to start, you know, uh, maybe two potentially in the next 18 months uh, and then the one after that. So we expect at any given time close to $100 million of development on our books when things ramp up because it will not be zero to 100 in a day. It will be, you know, a few months before it gets to that point. And, uh, you know, there's... Uh, a uh, very clear line of sight or good visibility into construction financing, seventy-five to ninety percent. Uh, what is available for it? So we would—that's what we would be doing. In the balance, call it you know, ten to twenty-five million, uh, and it'll take some time to get to the twenty-five million thing. We would fund it through our uh, retained cash flow.
1: Thanks very much, Nathan. I will uh, turn it back. Thank you. Thank you our next question comes from the line of Kyle Woolley with National Bank Financial.
4: Hi, good morning. Good morning,
3: Kyle. Um,
4: just uh, you know, in terms of managing uh, the outbreaks, are, are you finding now that like from an operational perspective, like the, you know, that uh, I don't know the right way to phrase this, but basically that like you're getting more efficient at, controlling these? Like, are you seeing an improvement sort of in how these are being managed in the home versus where you were sort of at the start?
2: Um, hi, good morning, Tal. I think there are three things which are different in the second wave um, than the first wave. This, but the first one is uh, universal masking didn't come till April. Uh, now everyone is wearing a mask and uh, ensuring they're wearing the rest of the personal protective equipment, and it is also readily available uh, now. So, you know, that is the first one. The second one is uh, single sites, uh, because in all all of our residences in Ontario especially, even ahead of uh, government directive, uh, we stopped all visitors uh, into long-term care into Ontario. So that has um, obviously helped. And the third one is universal testing, where people are getting tested uh, every two weeks. So that has been, in our view, one of uh, the three key factors of why a number of outbreaks might be less. Having said so, what is different now is more people are getting tested, Uh, so it's a combination of that, and things are not being shut down. So, you know, I think in Ontario so far, we have 10 days of more than 1,000 cases. And uh, to run any long-term care or or retirement community, you need people, you need team members, and they, you know, would go home and come back to work, and this is how COVID would get into most of the places, and there's really no way around it because even with the two-week testing, you know, they would have some delay in that. So, the, uh, you know, it is different in the sense that there's those three factors, but also uh, people are dealing with the reality of, uh, of the economy and not shutting it down completely. So, yeah, that's, that's what we're struggling with. And where we're seeing significant outbreaks uh, is, would be in, in the GTA area, which have one of the highest, um, you know, count of COVID cases in, in Canada. So that's the reality what we're dealing with. And a big part of it really is is, uh, is luck. You know, uh, two properties could be at the same place uh, with the same quality standards and one could have three people who somehow got in touch with COVID and, uh, and the other property, no one. So it's, it is very hard to predict that.
4: Okay. That's understood. Um just going back to the development, you you know you mentioned uh, these projects for about 160 beds or about 45 million bucks. Is that that translates to roughly 280,000 give or take per bed? Is that like, you know, if we're thinking about as more of these announcements go forward, is that is that a reasonable sort of number for us to think about when we're trying to budget in our head how how much these things might cost?
2: I would say anywhere, uh, depending on site, anywhere from 260 to 300. I'm just giving those numbers out just as a midpoint. So if yeah. anywhere from 260 to 300 per bed is what we're seeing now. Obviously construction costs uh, is uh, probably the only thing which never slows down. So, you know, they, there's continued inflation in it. So, you know, take it for the number as a, as a point in time that those are the kind of costs that we, we are seeing
4: okay and then just on on the redevelopment of these properties like i mean maybe we can use alpha as an example so assuming you get the green light to proceed with the new campus does the existing facility like is that going to run uh all the way through or does that get you know uh does that capacity get taken offline um i guess like what i'm trying to figure out is like you know as we as the whole system works through this Um, redevelopment phase, like, is the capacity of the system going to get even more acute because we're going to have to start taking beds offline? Right. Um, Not because they're in three- and four-bed wards, but also just because we're redeveloping the facilities.
2: So a development program is really two different kinds of development, and I think I would just bucket these three developments in North Bay. Brantford and Keswick separately than the one in Scarborough. So the cost estimate I gave you were for those three properties. In all of those cases, they're greenfield. So they're not on the existing site uh, where the current uh, long-term care operations are. So building these new would have no impact on current operations for the three projects. The fourth one, which is Altamont in Scarborough, uh, in that case, it would be uh, actually demolishing the current site and building on top of it. And part of the challenge is to ensure how do residents and team members get impacted, and that is that is part of our due diligence at this stage, and how do we ensure that, you know, there's a place for those residents and employment, potential employment for those team members. So that is the work we're doing. So that, that is that is a, a, quite a bit different, and that is driven by the reality of not really many GTA sites being available. There's some, um, the government recently came out with three different sites, and we're reviewing them if they could be an option. So that, those are kind of the things we're working on at the current time. But they're two very different kind of projects um, in Scarborough versus the other three.
4: And has there been any conversation um, about how to handle the license expiries for the older beds with the government? Because obviously they're not going to get through all of this prior to when the older licenses expire and I know the licenses can be a bit of an overhang in terms of funding financing.
2: Uh, for sure. Uh, I know our association has a continued dialogue uh, in terms of license expiry because uh, it would be very difficult to rebuild all the 30,000 beds in the province by 2025. I think I, I think it would not be feasible to do that, frankly. So, uh, again, that's what our association actively continued to do. Uh, to work uh, with the government uh, and I do think there's an understanding when this 2025 was announced I think it was around three or four years back or if I'm not wrong actually five years back and there has not been much development because the previous redevelopment program did not really work at all. I think they were close to 600 beds built in the last five years. So this new program is going to be feasible but what was difficult to do in 10 years I'm not sure how would be achieved in, in four. Now, so uh, we do expect something to change in that, but it's hard for us to predict public policy. Okay. Um, and then uh, just
4: on the occupancy moves between September and October, like, was there anything unique, uh, you know, in terms of the way, like, you know, were you expecting a lot of occupancy uh, loss in o- October? It just seems like, you know, it was a fairly meaningful reversion versus trend and versus what some of your peers are reporting.
2: I would say there was a lot of elbow grease, you know, to people really focused on making sure that we, uh, for that team, that they're, that they're doing everything they can. Uh, we looked at our team structure a bit. We looked at how people were, like our sales team, were uh, was incentivized. So I, I, I wish I could tell you it was some uh, a cool new campaign. It wasn't that. It was really, you know, uh, team working all out to ensure that was happening and had a singular focus on it ensure we do that from a sales and marketing perspective and following up on all the leads we have had it in the past. So that is something we are uh, very proud of and you know we feel we can do more of. If, uh, but obviously the, the second wave is going to damper our enthusiasm as it comes to that.
4: Okay. Um, and then I think that is it for me. I'll leave it there. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Our next
1: question comes from the line of Yash yes, paul with Laurentian Capital, a Laurentian Bank. Uh, good morning. Good
3: morning,
7: Yash. Um, I, if I understand this correctly, you have uh, in your long-term homes, you have vacancy even in your uh, private suites. Is that right?
2: So right now, long-term care is running at around 87% occupancy because in, in many areas, uh, I mean, uh, as that has not changed in terms of lens really control when people move into long-term care homes. And given the, if home is an outbreak uh, or if it's in a hot region, the number of move-ins are, are quite muted. So that, you know, we are running at 87% occupancy across the portfolio, which includes the A home. So yes, we would have vacancy in our private beds as well.
7: Okay, so if a home is an outbreak, the government covers the occupancy, but it doesn't pay you any uh, premium premium accommodation, uh, premium for premium accommodation, is that right?
3: That's right, so the government is covering us for full occupancy until the end of the year. However, look, what we have uh lost is the co pay from residents on that premiums for semi and semi private beds as those have uh a portion of those have become vacant as a uh, conditions of stopped during outbreak.
7: Okay. Um now I just want to focus on the four million NOI drop excluding the pandemic expenses. So how much of that would you um attribute to the premiums that you're not receiving? Or any, any breakdown would be great.
3: Yeah, so um, we've shared that the loss of preferred revenues is about 600000 for the quarter, and that is not included in our net pandemic expenses. Net pandemic expenses really represent the incremental expenses we have incurred to manage the pandemic net of related government funding.
7: Right. I just want to get a breakdown of the $4 million you talked about that is excluding net pandemic expenses, the NOI drop of $4 million. Um, All
3: right. So you're referring to long-term care? Yes. Yeah. So I know included in that is net pandemic expenses. And uh, beyond that, we have, again, the loss in preferred revenues. And then we also have incurred additional property expenses, you know, such as uh, utilities was a seasonally higher. as We have experienced a, a very warm summer and early uh, start to that, uh, as well as deferred maintenance expenses from notes the first half of the year where the uh, pandemic was uh, restricting access. And so much of that work uh, is now heavier on the uh, quarter and expecting to be such um, for the remainder of the year as well.
7: Okay. Um, Switching gears, I just just want to get some idea. uh, How much incremental cost do you incur when a property uh, or a home goes into outbreak, generally?
2: I think, the, hi, good morning, Yash. It is, um, it is a very difficult question to uh, to answer because outbreaks are not all similar. You could have an outbreak where a few team members were tested positive and they are at home isolating and there is no resident uh, which has tested positive. And in that case, your uh, cost might be limited. In another scenario, you could have significant residents and team members both tested positive so now you're looking to bring agency staff. Uh, you're, you're adding up more staffing than you need before because uh, you want to make sure that people are checking on the, on the residents more often. Uh, you know, all the regular things are shut down, such as eating in the dining room or others. So it is very difficult. There is no really one formula which applies. Um, if it's an outbreak, what happens? It really is a case-by-case scenario, and it would look very different in a retirement home versus long-term care. And it'll also look very different if a long term care home is an A or a C building. So it is there's really no one cost structure which works.
7: Like can you give us a range? The reason I'm asking is I'm trying to understand how like if a company like Siena is facing this, what 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 happens to a small mom and pop operator? when their facilities in outbreak.
2: That is correct. It is a, it is a province-wide issue or a country-wide issue uh, in our view. And you're, you're right. You know, it's, uh, this could have significant pressure uh, because there's really uh, the, the three things which uh, which drive what happens. Uh, I would say the majority of it, if it's out of 100, 80% of it is luck. Uh, the you know 15 uh, on the last 20% is location and maybe a little bit of your prep work because that is really the uh, you know, if someone walks into your home with COVID-19, it is very difficult to find that out, even though with two weeks testing. So I, we completely agree that, you know, it is a difficult time for everyone, including the smaller owners and operators, whether they're a municipal, uh, for-profit, or charity, and the same applies to us.
3: Okay.
7: Um, and how the the... Uh, pandemic expenses you incurred in Q2. Did you recover any of them in Q3 at all?
2: Again, it just, uh, you know, we got additional funding in Q3, but, you know, we incurred more expenses in Q3, so you can look at it as some of it is for recovery of Q3, but essentially you're spending more, and the recovery is what we got. So, again, we do not anticipate our previous expenses to be covered. In the future, again, our goal would be to ensure that we are spending money in a disciplined manner so they start to converge uh, and if it wasn't for the second wave we w- we could see a path for that conversion but uh, during a second wave again the the focus is not on cost the focus is to ensure that we are keeping people safe so again it's hard to predict that for the for the next quarter
7: no i'm i'm not trying to uh, forecast it but i'm just trying to understand so for example, you have incurred $20 million of non, um, sorry, net pandemic expenses. So should we, is it fair to assume that it's like, it's gone out of your pocket?
2: Uh, yes, that, could, that would be a fair assessment. That, uh, I'm not sure how much of it could be recovered. Some of it could be, you know, if, if a new funding program, but we do anticipate a good amount of it might be ours. Some of it is related to GNA, which we know would not be funded. Some of it is related to, um, for example, there was a pandemic pay which applied to frontline workers in the first wave, but we did something additional for our management team for for those homes as well because they worked equally hard. Um, You know, a lot of them were, you know, uh, working 24-7 in those homes. So, we understand that would not be funded and that we are okay with that. So, uh, again, I think a good chunk of it, we do not anticipate funding backwards. Uh, for the
7: 20 million. Okay, and uh, moving on to your uh, distribution and payout ratio, I'm I'm sure the board and management you are regularly discussing this uh, issue. So, just want to understand: at what point would you be forced to consider a cut? Like, do you guys have any uh, internal matrix that you track? Uh, w- w- how how should we think about it?
2: It really comes down to our comfort with with liquidity and the strength of a balance sheet. you know in in August, for example, when we had zero cases and we but we had a big refinancing uh, risk, we were looking at it in a certain way. when the refinancing risk is gone, you're looking now at it in a different way, but now you have a, a bit more expenses. and to just for context, you know our payout ratio is more than one hundred percent, but just uh, we paid dividends of around six million in a month, but our liquidity is two hundred and ten million. so Again, what we might be funding might be half a million or a million dollars over uh, the 100% payout ratio. And as we talked previously, our focus has never been on a payout ratio. Our focus is to ensure what's the uh, – do we have enough liquidity? Uh, so this is something we'll continue to monitor. And, again, given that there is a potential vaccine in the horizon and this could be a six- to nine-month thing, um, you know, again, our goal would be to uh, – keep the way things they are, but review them on a, on a consistent basis.
7: That's it for me. Thank you.
2: Thank you.
1: Thank you. And our next question comes from the line of Joanne Chen with BMO Capital Markets.
8: Hi. Hi. Good morning. Um, most of my questions have been answered, but maybe just a really quick one um, just to tie things up. Uh, you know, have you noticed any change I guess in terms of the competitive environment uh, from the summer and to now, given the the the, um, the environment has changed in terms of the number of cases, are you seeing things getting um, a little bit more competitive now as we enter into kind of November, December? Hi,
2: hi, Joanne. I, when you say competitive, you mean for the retirement uh, residents? oh uh,
8: yes. Yeah, that's sorry. Yeah, that's correct. Sorry.
2: Uh, you know, it's uh, the competition is so uh, local in all, in all of our communities. Uh, so, again, we haven't – everyone is running at a much lower uh, occupancy. So the, the, instead of a competition, I think the focus really has been to uh, ensure that we're reaching out to people in a proactive manner, understand their individual needs, what they might be looking for. So really no significant change uh, in competition. And, again, overall as a sector uh, – We don't really see a lot of price uh, cutting because it's not the right message for the current residents, and it's not really sustainable long-term. So uh, it it really is the focus is, you know, uh, what is the right fit for each uh, different resident or prospective resident. So really no change in competition from our viewpoint.
8: Okay, got it. And maybe this is a a much more um, longer-term question, but um, just given the, the, the cost pressures, that we've seen with this pandemic um, in your discussions with government. um, Is it too early to tell whether to see whether um, going forward there's gonna be a permanent change in terms of uh, the cost structure um, within the long-term care uh, business?
2: Uh, Sure, uh, you know, the the recent announcement of increasing the direct care hours to four hours and uh, the care has always been funded by the government, uh, any operator of any kind, whether it's profit, not for profit or municipal do not make any money off it, so we do anticipate as uh, uh, those care hours go up that there would be additional funding for it. So we don't really see a big, uh, and which is a positive thing to actually increase the number of care hours. So we mm-hmm. do not see a significant change in the overall cost structure uh, for this business. And the positive is that development, um, the new development program is not financially feasible, and we would see some development there, so that, that would be, again, uh, in our view, positive.
8: Okay. Uh, got it. Uh, that's it from us. Uh, and I'll uh, turn it back.
2: Thank you.
1: Thank you. And I'm sure no further questions. So with that, I will turn the call back over to Nitin Jane for any further remarks.
2: Uh, thank you, everyone, for your time, and we look forward to speaking to you in our next quarterly call. Thank you.